invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. John 1, 15 through 28. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes before me ranks before me, because he was before me. Sorry, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Since the reading of God's holy and inspired word, please be seated. together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace that you've shown to us in such abundance. So Lord, we thank you for the blessing of your word. Lord, as your word is preached, we pray that you would bless it. Lord, cause it to come alive in the hearts of your people, that it would accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, may it be your truth that is spoken and nothing else. Lord, get me out of the way and glorify yourself through the proclamation of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up again with our series in John's Gospel, uh, we'll, and we pick up in verse 15, and as we'll see here, there is a bit of repetition in this section, and so we'll take things slightly out of order this morning. Um, so if you can look down with me in your Bibles, we will begin in verse 19, and then work to verse 28, and then we'll circle back uh, to conclude the prologue, verses 15 to 18. Uh, so let us read together from verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now to get the context here, we may remember verse 6 has introduced us to this John as a man sent from God. One who came to bear witness 
about the light. Once again, this John is not the author of this gospel, or rather the John being discussed here is John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist received this title not because he was the founder of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, but because he was simply performing baptisms. John was a prophet who lived in the wilderness. Mark 1 and Matthew 3 both tell us that John was a man clothed with camel's hair, who wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now to this point already, John had amassed quite a following. Matthew 3 verse 5 says, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So he had garnered enough attention that it warranted questioning in the minds of the Jewish religious leaders. And so they sent messengers to ask, who are you? Right? Why are you doing these things? The Gospel of John records three questions. First one being, are you the Christ? Right? Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Are you the promised deliverer and descendant of David? Now again, we must remember that God had prophesied the coming of the Messiah many times throughout the Old Testament. And messianic expectation was understandably high at this point in history. Now, God had even given some hints about when the Messiah was to come. It was going to be in the days of the Roman Empire. And so they were waiting and looking for the arrival of the Messiah. And so now John comes on the scene, and he's doing some interesting things out in the desert. And so this is one of the questions. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we have been waiting for? John answers clearly to this first question and says, No, I am not the Christ. Again, as we saw from John's prologue, John the Baptist was not the light, but he came to testify to the light, to bear witness to the light. So the next question John receives, verse 21, What then? Are you Elijah? Now, among the prophecies God had given to his people was the promise that God would send the prophet Elijah. In fact, this was the very last revelation that God had given. It's in the very end of Malachi's prophecy, the very last Old Testament prophet. Uh, in the very last paragraph, God says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Malachi 4, verse 5. And so interestingly, though, John denies this as well. He said, I am not. And the reason why this is an interesting denial is because both Jesus and the angel who spoke to Zechariah, John's father, identified John with the ministry of Elijah. Luke 1 verse 17, the angel said to Zechariah, uh, about his son John, uh, he will go before him, before the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Likewise, Jesus, in Matthew 11 and in a few other places, says of John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. 
Now, additionally, there are a number of parallels between the ministry of John the Baptist and that of Elijah. Uh, both of them were prophets sent from God who spent most of their time in the wilderness. Both of them preached a message of repentance, turning back to the one true and living God. Both of these men preached directly against the evil behavior of the kings of their day. Elijah, of course, preaching to Ahab. Uh, John preaching to King Herod, saying it was unlawful for him to have his brother Philip's wife. And then as a result, both of them had their lives sought after by wicked queens. Right? Elijah was pursued and chased by Jezebel. Uh, John the Baptist was eventually beheaded through the scheming of Herodias. Both even wore the same thing. We, we already saw John's uh, clothing, that he was dressed in a, a garment of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and this is the exact wardrobe sported by the prophet Elijah. He was even recognizable uh, by simply what he wore. So what then are we to do with John's denial? We see all these parallels. We have the testimony both of Jesus and the angel uh, that John is, in some sense, Elijah. So how do we make sense of, his, of this denial in John 1.21? Well, I think there are two decent options that could possibly explain this. The first is that John himself simply didn't understand the fullness of his own role. Uh, D.A. Carson suggests this explanation. He writes, The synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, report that Jesus identified John the Baptist with the promised Elijah, but they never suggest that the Baptist himself made the connection. And here, he refuses to make it, a refusal which, when placed beside the synoptic evidence, suggests that he did not detect as much significance in his own ministry as Jesus did. Now, this one is plausible. Uh, you may remember John himself even sent messengers to Jesus to ask him if he was, in fact, the Messiah or if they should wait for someone else. Um, we see a bit of a, a lack in John's knowledge at that point. Um, and it's certainly true that many of the prophets did not always understand the fullness of what God was doing, even through their own prophetic ministries. For example, 1 Peter 1, 11, and 12 tells us that the prophets and even the angels were longing to look into the things that God was prophesying. Uh, through the prophets. And so we do see that God does frequently use people in bigger ways than what they themselves are even aware of in the moment. So that's the first possibility, uh, that John himself wasn't aware of the full significance of his role. Uh, the second possibility, though, is that John was simply trying to correct a misunderstanding on the part of those who questioned him. Albert Barnes argues that the Jews supposed that it would be the real Elijah returned from heaven. And so in this sense, John denied that he was Elijah, close quote. So this view says that John is simply explaining that he is not the literal Elijah. He is not the, the same man who walked the earth centuries before. And this view, I think, is also very plausible. Now, the language from Malachi could give the impression that God was going to send the literal prophet Elijah back to earth, when in reality, as the angel said to Zechariah, John was coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, but was not literally Elijah himself. And I, I think I lean toward this explanation. 
Now, again, especially given the fact that John's own father had been told that John would go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah, it seems somewhat unlikely that John himself would never have been made aware of his own connection uh, to Elijah. Now, in any case, John's answer was still not satisfactory to his questioners, and they asked him still a third question. Uh, still in verse 21, they asked, <clears throat> Are you the prophet? Right? In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses had prophesied that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers, and it is to him that you shall listen. So John's questioners ask, if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah, then are you perhaps the prophet like Moses? And John here again says no. Uh, verse 22, so they said to him, well then, who are you? We need to give some answer to the people who came, uh, who sent us. What is it you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John's answer points his questioners in a new direction. Right? They came out to inquire about him, and he says, I am a voice, not to be inquired about, but heard. Right? The point of my ministry is not to make you wonder about me, but rather to prepare the way of the Lord. Charles Ellicott writes, They are acting as men who ask questions about the messenger of a great king who is coming to them and is at hand, instead of hastening with every effort to make ready for him. Stop asking questions about the messenger and listen to what he says. Prepare the way of the Lord. John here quotes from Isaiah 40 verse 5. Which says there, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now D.A. Carson writes, in the original context... So back here in Isaiah 40, Isaiah is calling for a metaphorical improvement in the road system of the desert to the east, a leveling of hills and valleys, a straightening of the curves to accommodate the return of the covenant people from exile. But even in Isaiah, the end of the exile begins to serve as a model, a literary type of the final return to the Lord far greater than a return to geographical Jerusalem, close quote. So we could summarize this and put it simply. When he is asked about his ministry, John quotes from a passage in Isaiah that was originally about a return from exile. Right? God's people had been taken captive, but God was now preparing to move, and Israel's exile would end. And they would now get to come home. So because of what God was about to do, the exile would soon end and the glory of the Lord would be revealed 
as he brings his people back from exile. And D.E. Carson said that even in Isaiah already, this return from exile served as a type. But that means this event foreshadowed a greater event still to come. And so John, by quoting this passage, is very likely intending to say, a greater deliverance from exile is coming. Just as God's people needed to prepare themselves for God to move, to bring them back from exile, even now, God is preparing to move again. This is what John's life and ministry is all about. Prepare the way of the Lord. John is pointing to another. Verse 24. Now these questioners, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Right? If you're neither, none of these figures that we're expecting, then who authorized you to baptize? Under whose authority are you doing this? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now John's answer is to link the authority of his ministry with the one who is to come. Right? Whatever authority, whatever position I have enabling me to baptize, it is nothing in comparison to the one who comes after me. Again, stop focusing on me, because right now, among you, stands one that you do not know. Now, we know the Messiah was already there. You may remember, uh, Luke 3.23 tells us that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. And we also know that he and John the Baptist were the same age, remembering that John was the baby who left in his mother's womb uh, when the voice of the pregnant Virgin Mary reached the ears of John's mother. So at this point, Jesus was the same age as John. He was already among the people. The Word had already taken flesh and been dwelling among the people for about 30 years or so. But he had not yet revealed who he was or begun his public ministry. So John testifies, among you stands one you do not yet know. He who comes after me, the one I've been speaking about. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He is the one you should be concerned with. He is the one who deserves your attention. My job, my ministry, everything about me is meant to point to him. And I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. Now that's significant, right? John, uh, the person that these people thought might himself be the Messiah, with his large following, thousands of people coming to hear him, to be baptized by him. And John says, I am as nothing. I am not worthy of even performing the lowliest of tasks to even bow down at his feet in the dirt and untie the strap of his sandal. That would be a greater honor than what I deserve. This is the Son of God. 
as John has already shown us, John the Apostle has already shown us. This is the Son of God, the one through whom and for whom all things were made. This is the King, the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2, 10 and 11. This is the Word made flesh, the Creator who entered his creation and tabernacled among us. And so we ask, what reverence is due to him? What attitude or posture for those, what would be suitable for those in his presence? What kind of honor does he deserve? With what level of devotion ought he to be served? John spells it out clearly. The lowliest task we could perform in service to him, something like untying his sandals. The lowliest task would be an honor that we do not deserve. Do you believe that? Do you share John's view of Christ? Brothers and sisters, in this is Christian maturity. This is, in large measure, what it is to grow as a Christian, to have your view of Christ exalted. To have him become more valuable, more precious, more lovely, and more magnificent in your eyes. For if your view of Christ is small, your view of his grace will be proportionately small. Your worship will be half-hearted. Your desire to honor him with your life will be lacking. Your service to him will feel like an unnecessary obligation. Your praise of him will be dishonest and lackluster. If your view of Christ is small, everything in the Christian life will be a drudgery. But if you come to see Christ for who he truly is, if you begin to grasp his majesty, his worth, if you begin to comprehend what John has here been teaching us about Christ, that he is the only unique Son of God, the one through whom and for whom all things were made. If you come to see the fullness of what Scripture reveals about him, that he is the Anointed One, the Messiah, the long-promised Son of David, the one who would receive an everlasting dominion, the Son of Man given authority by the Ancient of Days, if you would see him in his offices of prophet, priest, and king, if you would see the glories of his grace, how he is the one mediator between God and man, the one through whom all the blessings of God are dispensed, if you would begin to grasp his glory, then you would be able to say, like John, I am not worthy to untie his sandals. And so what an amazing privilege, what an amazing privilege that our Messiah and King grants us the blessing of serving him in his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, if we grasp that the lowliest task is one that we are not worthy of, 
and we will understand that any assignment from our King is to be received as a glorious privilege. As your view of Christ grows, as your love for him increases, as you come to see him as he truly is, then to serve him becomes easy. To worship him, to praise him, and to spend time in prayer, this all becomes natural speech. Right, just think of this. How difficult is it for us to praise the things that we really love? Hockey fans delight to speak of their favorite team or favorite player. It is no drudgery for the young music fan to sing the praises of their favorite bands. Right? How hard is it for a mother who loves her new baby to speak glowingly about how wonderful her child is? Right? We very, very naturally spill over into praise for that which we love and value. And that love will spill over into action. Right? We will go to great lengths to pursue the things that we love and value. We will spend money, time, and energy on that which is important to us. And the greater our love, the more freely we will give ourselves to the object of our devotion. Right? The greater our love, the easier it is for us to pursue those things. And so it is with Christ. As our love for him grows, as we see him to be precious, valuable, glorious, and magnificent, then our worship, our service, and our devotion becomes heartfelt. It simply flows from the love that we have for Christ. And so we can make sense of Jesus' statement. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. The Christian with the kind of devotion modeled by John the Baptist. The Christian who knows that he is unworthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah is a Christian who will delight to keep the Lord's commandments. And so if we would not be hypocrites, we must live for our Lord. We must not be people who would profess their own unworthiness before the feet of Christ, but then live completely for themselves. It is hypocrisy of the highest order to proclaim on Sunday, I am unworthy to untie his sandals, but then to live for yourself the rest of the week. As A.W. Tozer once put it, if you do not worship God seven days a week, you do not worship him on one day a week. There is no such thing known in heaven as Sunday worship unless it is accompanied by Monday worship and Tuesday worship and so on. As Romans 12 verse 1 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
we are to worship with every part of our lives. Brothers and sisters, let your devotion to Christ be seen in deed and not just in word. Live it out daily. Worship God with your families. Read, pray, and sing together. Bring up your children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Be deeply invested in your church community so that you would obey your Lord's commands to bear one another's burdens, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to serve and to fellowship together. Serve your Lord in your work. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men. Glorify him with your attitude and your work ethic. Live your life as an ambassador for Christ's kingdom. Be a light in your workplace. Bring the leaven of the kingdom wherever you are. May it not be said that we honor Christ with our mouths only. But may we live for him with every part of who we are, understanding that to even untie his sandals is a privilege of which we are undeserving. So how much more ought we to serve him in every way that he commands? All right, let's return now to the verses that we skipped and see even more of who Christ is. John 1, verse 14 and following. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, as we've already seen hinted in verse 27, and we'll see next week, this was John's confession, John's testimony, his message. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So although Jesus began his ministry after John, John makes it clear that everybody must know Christ ranks first. He ranks before me because he was before me. As Jesus would later say of Abraham, he could say of John as well, before John was, I am. In other words, if it is age or order that would confer honor, then Christ is worthy of supreme honor, for he is before all. As the author, John the Apostle, has already shown, Christ is the eternal word of God made flesh. And so do not mistake the fact that he began his ministry after John's, as though this made Christ in any way inferior to John, or to any of the other prophets, for that matter. He was before all. Verse 16. For from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. 
So from the fullness of Christ, the Word made flesh, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. From this fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And this is actually a bit of a tricky verse. And the difficulty has to do with the word upon. Uh, in Greek, it is the word anti. Now, some take this to mean that it is from Christ that we have received grace after grace. Right? He is the source of one blessing after another, as some translations have it. And this is certainly true theologically. Christ is the channel through which God blesses his people with one blessing after another. But this doesn't seem to be John's point here, especially when we consider verse 17, which is tightly linked with verse 16. But if you take this interpretation of verse 16, then that connection is unclear in verse 17, which says, which begins with the word, for the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So notice verse 17 is comparing and contrasting the law with the grace and truth given through Christ. And so I think verse 16 makes more sense if we translate NT uh, as it is actually more commonly used to mean in place of. Because right? then we would have this. For from his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace. Or a new grace on, upon an old one. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we would understand then John's point to be that the law which was given through Moses was initially a grace received from Christ. Right? A grace received from his fullness of grace and truth. And I think this corrects a common misunderstanding. Many people tend to view God's law as being harsh and exacting. A very common view is to see a massive divide between the God of the Old Testament, with his law, his judgment, and wrath. Uh, we, they see a divide between that God and then Jesus Christ in the New Testament, who comes along and makes God nice, or who softens God, or perhaps presents an entirely new God altogether. And I think John's prologue quite clearly corrects that faulty view. There is only one God, and he has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Son, the eternal Word, was present at creation. He was, in fact, the one through whom all things were made. God the Son has eternally been God the Son. And so you cannot remove him from the equation for the events of the Old Testament as if he had not been involved. Now we see to have the law of God is to know the will of God. And this is truly a blessing of grace. Now the law itself uh, does not give grace, right? But rather the one who lives, or who does it shall live by it. Um, but it is gracious in the sense that God did not have to give it to us. Right? God had no obligation to reveal his will to man. Even the covenant of works, which was a covenant of works in the garden, can be seen as a gracious blessing 
in the sense that God graciously granted the opportunity for man to attain blessings through the covenant. Right? God did not need to do that. He didn't need to give that opportunity. He was under no obligation to do so. But he did it freely. So also with the law, it is a gracious blessing of God that he would reveal his will to man. And so in this way, we can legitimately say that the law which came through Moses was a blessing of grace from the fullness of Christ, the eternal word. And through his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. While the law was and is a blessing, there are certain things that the law could not do. While the law reveals to us God's will, and for us in the New Covenant functions as a guide, while it does restrain evil wherever it is enforced, and while the law is good and perfect in itself, the law is not enough for us. For what we will all find when we come to examine God's law is that we all fall short. The law of God reveals to us our own sinfulness. It stops our mouths. It shows us what we are really like. Right? By nature, we tend to assume that we are good people. I'm sure we can all think of some people in our lives, some people we know that we would consider worse in some ways than we are. And so by comparison, we can begin to look pretty good in our own eyes. But God will not judge us by comparing us to the people around us. God's standard is not simply that we be able to list some people we think are worse than we are. God's standard is perfection. James 2 verse 10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. This is like taking a test with like a million questions. If you get one question wrong, you get a zero. Right? If you keep the whole law but fail in one point, you become guilty of all of it. So notice, this is not about being better than the people around you. It's not even about making your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. There is only one question. Are you a sinner? Have you broken God's holy law? Are you perfect? Or are you a sinner? In case you're wondering, Scripture tells us, none is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we see there's nothing at all wrong with God's law. It is perfect and it does exactly what it is supposed to do. It is like a perfect mirror. 
where we come to it and look in the mirror and we can see the truth about ourselves. We can see how depraved we really are by nature. By comparing ourselves to God's perfect standard, we can see that we fall short. Now, gracious as God was to give us this perfect standard, gracious as he was to show us our condition, if we would be accepted before God, then we need something more than what Christ gave through Moses. We need more grace. And that's the good news. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we receive grace that the law could not provide. The law shows us our sin. Christ bears our sin. The law set forward a standard of righteousness. Christ fulfilled that standard. The law pronounced us guilty for our covenant breaking. Christ pronounces us righteous through his covenant keeping. The law was given on tablets of stone. Christ inscribes it on the hearts of his people. For those who repent of their sin and turn to Christ in faith, everything he accomplished is credited to them. His righteousness, his perfect fulfilling of the perfect law is credited to them, imputed to them, counted to their account. We are counted as righteous through our union with Christ. Our debt paid. Justice satisfied. It is finished. Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. All right, let's finish up with verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now this raises a question. No one has ever seen God. But what about all the people in the Old Testament who saw God? Right, didn't many of the prophets see him? Well, the first possibility is that John is simply saying, nobody has seen God in his fullness. Right, so whatever visions were given to the patriarchs or the prophets, they were not seeing God in his fullness. Um, I think there's something to that. But the second possibility, uh, no one has ever seen God but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now that is a fascinating statement made about Christ. Uh, the only God. This is the same word we had earlier. Um, if you remember the only begotten, uh, the monogamous. And we said it would be better translated as only unique. Right? So the only God, the monogamous theos, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so the second possibility is that John has, is saying, nobody has ever seen the Father, but rather it has always been the Son who made him known, even in the Old Testament era. Right? And so that would say that all of the appearances of God, all the theophanies in the Old Testament, were really Christophanies. They, they were revelations of the pre-incarnate Son 
Uh, James White takes this position and he writes, Who did Isaiah see in Isaiah 6? Who walked with Abraham by the oaks of Mamre? None other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the eternal Logos. And I think this is a very plausible view as well. Uh, or thirdly, John could simply be trying to draw a contrast, saying that by comparison to what had been revealed in the Old Testament, uh, that Old Testament revelation of God was dim and shadowy, uh, and what we have now outshines it. As Calvin writes, How much better our condition is than that of the Father's, because God, who was formerly concealed in his secret glory, may now be said to have rendered himself visible. For certainly when Christ is called the lively image of God, this refers to the peculiar privilege of the New Testament. And whichever view we take, this is certainly John's point. Christ is the fullest revelation of God. Christ is the one who makes the Father known in the fullest way. As he himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Christ, the monogamous Theos, the only unique God who is at the Father's side, the one who was with God in the beginning, he has come to us from God and has returned to his side. He has made God known. He is the one who has granted to us grace upon grace. He is the Messiah, our Lord, our Savior, the one whose sandals we are not worthy to untie. Brothers and sisters, let your lives, like John the Baptist, be a signpost pointing to Christ. May your love for him increase as you grow in the grace and knowledge of him. May your worship and service become a delight as you see him more fully and reflect upon the glories of his grace. Amen.